Empire podcast this week. We fought the law and the law won. Yes, we have a good old natter with Jude Law, star of The Nest. And we also talked to the star of the brand new Candyman, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. 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 Didn't work. Damn it. It's a shame. Maybe I wasn't using the mirror. That's, that's what it's got to be. Anyway, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has to remind itself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. But still, the place you live in is that much more drab and empty that they're gone. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special Totemosh edition of the Empire Podcast. I'm joined as ever by three colleagues of such lethal cunning: Helen O'Hara, hello, James Dyer. I am James Dyer. I don't care about James those Dyer guys. Who cares what they Who cares what they have to say? Who cares what they think? Because the focus in this episode is for the very last time on our glorious leader, our editor in chief, Terry White. Hello, Terry White. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Start or finish as you mean to go on, Terry. Uh, here I come, ready to go out with a whimper. <laughs> <laughs> Burn it all down, Terry. Who the cut? Bangly bang. Tell us, tell yeah. us. Yeah, we did that. We did that on the live podcast. I'm worried I didn't leave myself any matches or gasoline, although I'm sure there's always more where that came from. Let's be honest. <laughs> that is true. Uh, welcome, Terry, to your very like this is your penultimate day in charge of of Empire. It is. How weird is that? Yeah, I've been off for most of the week because I have a, an ill child, and so now I think I'm attempting to do my final six months of Empire in two days. Um, so <laughs> when Nick Dissemlian takes over, when I hand over the keys at one minute past six tomorrow night. I'm just going to give him a pile of paper that I've set on fire to and smeared some dog poo on, and I think. That will be a. Uh, that will be. I the think you'll get the message. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing the, stuff. Um, the keys of empire, incidentally, guys, uh, look exactly like the keys of hell in the Sandman <laughs> comics. Just to give you a, a, an image in your head there. So, do you need a time turner? Basically, is that what you're asking? You just need a little bit more time just to relive the same day over and over. Well, yeah. What if this was your day, your your Groundhog Day, like this, or your? Oh, or oh my God. Jesus Christ! That would be awful. Preferably not. No. No. Okay. No. No offense yeah. to you, lovely people. No, of course no, not. No, but of also course not. none taken. Uh, how can I possibly take offence after everything we've, we've said to each other for the last six years? <laughs> this is mild in comparison. Do you have any regrets? Any, are you changing your mind? Are you going to do on Tuesday? Because obviously we've got a bank holiday Monday here in, in the UK. So on Tuesday, are you just going to come back into work like George Costanza in Seinfeld and act like nothing happened? Absolutely not. No, and it's funny. In all truthfulness, I was, um, it was a very hard decision to leave. and The hardest decision, in fact, that I've made. And... I worried that as my notice period went on, because if people feel like I've been leaving forever, it's because I kind of have. I've done a full three months uh, notice period. And I was worried it's that the as end I... Of, it's at the end of uh, Return of the King. That's basically yeah, what you're doing yeah. right now. But, and I thought, do you know what? Like, I'm going to get to it and I'm going to go, oh, fuck, I made a mistake. And while I, I'm still nursing a sore heart... I think it's time. And do you know what? Everybody who's edited Empire, it's not yours. Empire belongs to nobody. You get handed it for a while to try and look after, be the guardian of, try not to massively fuck it up and break it. That's kind of the the, the brief. 
and um and you know it's only yours for a, a brief period of time and then you have to pass it on to somebody else and i think that's mm-hmm. as, as it should be it's what makes empire as has made it live as kind of boldly and beautifully as it has for 32 and a half years oh man oh man mm. Sad times, though. Sad times. Sorry, was um, I sincere? Did I ruin it? <laughs> for a second, just for a second, you were sincere. But don't worry. Quick, Chris, say bum. <laughs> yeah. Bum. How well? I think I got it back. Bum hole. Put the two together. <laughs> there, there we go. We rescued it. Uh, so, Terry, because this is your last podcast and because you were trying to cram six months of work into a single, well, as far as I can tell, a single afternoon <laughs> as well, we we wanted to dedicate as much of this podcast to answering listener questions specifically for you and about your tenure and about what you're going to be doing next. And I wanted to you know, give that as much of an hour as possible, but sadly, we can't do that. But I'm going to try and do a good 20, 25 minutes. Uh, so earlier in the week, I asked uh, listeners to send in questions for Terry and only for Terry this week. There's no three-fact structure. You'll be delighted to know Hooray! this week. Uh, That's one of Terry's last editorial decrees. Uh, take that fucking <laughs> thing outside, you. set it alight and kill it with fire, I think uh, were her final words. I'm, I'm, not, I'm making that up. She didn't say that at all. She thought it, though. But let's take me the first question here. This is in the order that I'm seeing them, maybe not the order that they were sent. This is from at Gareth Lloyd 5. I was going to say Gareth Lloyd the 5th. What advice would she give herself if she could travel back in time to when she started at Empire? Oh, God. Uh, First bit of advice, don't take everybody to the pub on Friday because none of them drink. They don't really like pubs. And... (laughs) But they will because they're lovely, polite human beings stand in the street awkwardly and pretend that this is something they may do occasionally. I think my icebreaker managed to refreeze the frozen ground on which I walked in. It thawed a little bit for that first week and then I swear, everybody, let's knock off at five and go to the pub for a bloody pint. And uh, obviously I barely listened to what you'd all told me about yourselves because I I now knowing you as I do that you're not ones for... uh, knock off early and get on the old Sambucas. So then neither am I these days. Maybe you've changed me. Um, so I would say wow. that and I would say not to, I was very, I was, do you know what? I was more scared than I let on when I took over Empire. And my philosophy in life is um, never show you scared. Um, and if it helps, just do like the exact opposite and pretend you're the scary one which has kind of worked in some scenarios, but I think I was in, I was quite intimidated by Empire. And I, I think that's quite right, because I think you have to understand the kind of legacy of this brilliant thing you're inheriting. But I wish I'd have said to enjoy that initial bit a bit more, because I was so nervy and didn't want to fuck it up, didn't want to like mess up the team, didn't want to do anything that would ever harm Empire. So I think it took me a while to properly enjoy it because this is, let me tell you, spoiler, the best job in the world in many, 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 many wonderful ways. You get to meet amazing filmmakers you work with, and I say this with you guys here, but I've said it without you here, the, the best team working in in any kind of media that I've ever worked and in. And Chris. And Chris. Well, actually, the joke is, and you, James. So um, oh. don't, ruin, don't ruin the joke. Um, and you get to watch amazing stuff. A normal day, but it's, you know, well, used to be more so, but you'd sit in a screening room and watch an amazing or not amazing film. Then you'd get to talk about it with people. Then you get to write about it, which would start a whole new discussion with the readers. Like, what a joy. So it is. I wish I'd enjoyed that initial bit earlier, but maybe, you know, that was some... Uh, I had to uh, get over. All right. Okay. So here we go. This is from Nigel Lockett 2, or the second again. 
proudest moment, greatest achievement? Oh, proudest moment, greatest achievement. Well, watching C for last week's Pilot TV podcast was clearly. But do you know the what? Pilot, pilot, you bring it up, but Pilot has been incredible. We launched it as a magazine a few years ago. And that didn't work out for several reasons, which I won't go into here. Um, but, burn it to the ground, but burn it to the ground. <laughs> um, but I, I believe Pilot was exactly the right idea at the right time. You know, cinematic TV was really just taking off. When you look at the TV landscape now, I mean, it was unthinkable when I first took over Empire. You've had Game of Thrones and things, but we're talking mm. about, about TV becoming this massive cultural kind of hotspot that empire could entirely be part of without betraying our, our first love which is film and i think launching pilot with james and with chris lupton and boydie and julie emery was just i think it was a huge moment of pride that we built something new in a time when a lot of places were closing or you know were cutting back and pilots become now an incredible podcast, which has a really great, loyal, vocal <laughs> audience. And I'll tell you what else. And this is, I think, the team's biggest achievement, which is, I think, the Empire podcast. I'm just going to say, when I came in, I I felt like um, the podcast was like this weird little outcast over here and you guys were just left to your own devices and weren't given the support that such a brilliant product should be given, and I, f- I f- hopefully feel like the brand is is more together now, and that you've had the support, more support that you needed to to really do amazing things with the podcast because you three are brilliant broadcasters. The Empire Podcast is a fucking brilliant podcast. The Spoiler Special is just a brilliantly executed, bang on the money idea. The fact that we've now got that as a subscription product, the fact that the podcast continues to go from strength to strength continues to like have advertisers queuing up to sponsor it the live events are unlike anything i've ever been to in my life amazing terrifying and all of the above i think those things have been really exciting and you know and to keep the print mag going at the heart of it has has been and hopefully to kind of evolve it to maybe be a little bit more relevant to today and a little bit more inclusive that was kind of all I ever wanted to do and and learning about this other stuff through you guys has been a a real joy for me you nailed a bit about the podcast it was word for word what I sent you earlier (laughs) on so thank you for that you you screwed up in rehearsal but you nailed it on the night and that's what that's all I can ask for we both know if you'd have sent it me today I'd have like deliberately gone out my way not to say it and um, (laughs) what's great about you guys is you're as thran as each other which is amazing it's it's, I Where's never what? thought I'd find it. Thran. What's Thran? What, what is stubborn, a Thran? Like stubborn or contrary. Oh, okay. I could just yeah. make up a word. No, it's a very common That's word. That's a brilliant Is this a Northern word. Ireland vernacular word? or? Yeah, it's a little bit Northern Irish. I'm going to steal that Thran. You're Thran. Thran. I'm almost certain that Helen's just made it up, so I wouldn't steal yeah, it. Just I yet. haven't. You can ask my mum. Thran. <laughs> your mum make it up? <laughs> she might have, but she called me Thran a lot, so I know it exists. As Thor once said, all words are made up. And who can <laughs> quibble with the wisdom of the God of Thunder? How's it spelled, Helen? I don't know. T-H-R-A-N? Oh, there's nothing like that in the dictionary. Maybe it's got a silent I in it. Let's have a look. Is it any any relation to Thranduil? Uh, Yes, it's related to Thranduil. Okay. Do you think it might be one of these words where, where you know, parents say it to kids like when they're when they're little, and then you just accept it as an actual thing, and then when you repeat it as a grown up, and everyone looks at you blankly, you think, "Huh, no, mum." Okay, you look it up. If you do thran Irish slang, it comes up as stubborn, cranky, or obstinate. Here we go. I knew it was vernacular. 
It is vernacular. There's nothing wrong with yeah. vernacular, posh boy. And yes, Chris and I um, are equally Thran. You are equally Thran, which oh, is great. All about the Thran. <laughs> no comment at this time. Uh, okay, next question. <laughs> which film set visit was your best memory and why? Did you do a lot of set visits? This, so I did uh, Miss Marvel, Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel. Miss Marvel, wow. Wow, in the middle of a pandemic. Like? Fuck that, you guys. <laughs> uh, Black Panther. I'll tell you what, I really, so I really loved Black Panther because I went on set and I'd already been on set of, I'm trying to think what was the Marvel thing I was on set before. Footnotes. Anyway, look. When I walked on that set, I'd never seen a set like it. The size and scale and scope was incredible. And, you know, we knew that the cast were predominantly African-American, but the crew, I'd never seen such diversity and representation in the crew itself. And you just saw it when you walked on set. The It felt different than any set I'd ever been on. And you, I, I came back and I said to the... I said to the team, I said, like, there's something special happening on that set. You know, we'd been hanging out with the production designer who was Hannah Beachler, who'd done Beyonce's Lemonade video. And I saw this amazing production art she had. And that led to the incredible subscriber cover she built for us, which Mm. was from all of the research she'd done when she'd visited Africa with Ryan Coogler and stuff like that, those moments of magic where you feel you really nailed kind of the spirit and the sensibility of the film. And we really did that. And that was the direct result of, of being on that set and fi- just feeling it was some, It was really weird. It was just something in the air. You were like, this is magic. And obviously met Chadwick Boseman, who was, you know, I saw him do a scene and that was talk, talk about magic. Right. And often when you go on set, it's like having the curtains drawn back because, you know, things take a lot longer than they seem to. Obviously, a lot of them, the actual magic is missing. But his charisma was unbelievable. And then the other one I'd say is I went on set of Great Showman in New York. And that was I just was a delight. I was waiting for you to mention that. <laughs> yeah, because I was there for the shooting of This Is Me. So the scene when the oddities go to the backstage door and Hugh Jackman's trying to impress impress the posh people because he'd had the nightingale singing that evening. He shuts the door in their face and they burst into This Is Me. Oh, my God, like goosebumps. So playing This Is Me dead loud. And it was before, obviously, any of the soundtrack had got out there. And I was like, what is this song? It's amazing. Oh, and and Trump, that was the day, also the day Trump um, became president. I was there for his inauguration. So I watched Trump be inaugurated. And then I went on set and saw them saying, this is me. And I think it was the only thing that could have gotten me out of my Trump sinkhole. So there wasn't like a, a feeling of joyous celebration on the set then? I mean, th- th- if you've been around Hugh Jackman, the man is, is you know, exudes joyous celebration. But mm-hmm. I think it was a it was a tough day for New York um, because obviously mm. Trump was, was was from there, had lived there for years. I think they felt partly responsible somehow for <laughs> this monster yeah. who was now in the White House. But yeah, it was, I mean, that song still, I've seen The Great Showman, as you guys know, like 50 times, that song still makes me cry. I'm not going to cry. 
<laughs> That's an amazing set, scene to see. What did you see on Black Panther? What, what sets were you on? So we were on, it was the, it, what would end up being the confrontation between um, Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan. Nice. Um, so, and, and a lot of it, and it was also when you saw that a lot of it was practical. Same with Captain Marvel, actually. The, what shocked me was how much practical they actually had of, you know, the spaceships and, in, and interiors they built out to a lot of detail. Even the Jude Law was real. Jude Law was a delight. Like an actual delight. Everybody was a delight. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Somebody, I'm not going to say who wasn't. That would be bad. Oh, oh yeah, okay. I know who Austin, that is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> we yeah, all know. I know who you're talking about. You can probably make an educated guess. Uh, at Maida M's, what perk as editor will you miss most? Me. <laughs> you're not a perk, you're a jerk. What, what, I was going to say, would we call ourselves a perk? <laughs> what did we? What have we said about self-awareness? Um, <laughs> like, getting to see movies. And like, not even for free. Like, do you know what? I always still... Does that stop now? That you, yeah. Like, do I, I just stop you going to the cinemas? But I stop. I get put screenings. Screenings, okay. seeing films in the middle of the day as your job. That, for me, has always been a perk. It's like, how is this a job? Like, most people we know have what I call real jobs, where they have mm. to be doing something that potentially they don't like. We get to do the thing we love the most, which is always bizarre to me. So, yeah, you know, going into a screening room at two in the afternoon and spending the next three hours watching something... As the editor of Empire, that is a a very good use of your time and and being able to see stuff early and and not in a kind of a elitist way, but in the way of you know what it's like when there's something you're desperate to see as a film fan and you get to see it early because somebody may be interested in your opinion on it. That just feels like again, that's when you feel like God, is this even a real job? It feels miraculous. That's every day is Christmas, not every day is Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what about you know, the free Ferraris from Marvel for giving <laughs> good reviews and, and the uh, and the regular donations into your account and the to the tune of several million pounds? I mean that that that's something that happens. Yeah, right? I mean as, as everybody knows, you know, Kevin Feige is is constantly giving us backhanders. Yep. So he's just spending me another ten grand. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Chime in any time <laughs> as your lawyer. <laughs> I should make clear. <laughs> We're saying this because it's not true. Because yeah. Guys, this is satire. <laughs> yes. um, in fact, there's a film out this week that, that portrays criticism as a lucrative job that will get you a very, very fancy apartment. Mm. And, God, I wish um, that were true. Make you extremely uh, fashionable and stylish. And I can assure you that is not the case. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Terry's fashionable and stylish, but the rest of us aren't. No, we're playing catcher. <laughs> <laughs> At Lizzie. Is there a creative that you wish you'd gotten to interview before leaving? Because you've you've kind of had a, a bucket list scenario going on here. You've interviewed John Waters a number of times yeah. and people that you've really, really idolised. So um, Francis Ford Coppola was a big one. And you Ooh. joyfully allowed me to interview him. And that was just a dream come true. The only person who I was kind of desperate to interview, but I knew I wasn't the right person to do it, was Scorsese. So I am a massive, massive Scorsese fan. But I knew there were people in the room better than me to do that interview. And at that point, it's really hard being the editor. Because if you're a good editor, you know, I've worked with not so good editors who would have absolutely snapped up that job and done an all right job, but not done as well of a job as the person sat 
three seats to their right. And that's half the job of being the editor is knowing who's best for what and not just selfishly taking all the stuff you want. So I'm, I'm sad I never got to interview Scorsese and De Niro, just to be a complete cliche. They were the two. And yes, there was an opportunity when I could have done both. But that's me, you know, just a giver. What about Stallone? Have you done Stallone? I don't want to do Stallone. I just, I just think Stallone for me exists on the screen and I have concerns about an in real, in real life encounter may, maybe won't live up to how he is in my head. Um, but I've done Shane Meadows, as you say, I've done John Waters a couple of times, Mike Lee, you know, filmmakers that I've always loved and respected. Ava DuVernay was one of my favourite interviews that I ever did. I interviewed her a couple of times. You know, I've, I've been very lucky and got to interview some brilliantly smart, creative um, people. It's it's one of the great parts of the job. At San Julif. X-A-N-J-U-L-I-F-F. Uh, uh, what's the best reaction you've had to an issue during your time? There's been a couple. So the British New Wave issue we did just actually as I resigned. Um, it was unlike anything I think Empire's ever done in its history. And people seem to really kind of respond to, I suppose, the boldness of that. The most emotional response we've seen was for the Greatest Cinema Moments issue from earlier this year. That was obviously the um, idea from Edgar Wright to really celebrate, get filmmakers and actors to really celebrate their favourite ever moment in a cinema. Such a simple idea. But Edgar Wright and Nick Dissemlian worked on it together and basically pulled together 40 filmmakers and actors, all writing these beautiful pieces this incredible piece from Daniel Craig that nobody saw coming. This an amazing piece from Spielberg. You probably would see coming, but it was still really incredible. You know, he then got Tarantino to do a podcast with him. That that tapped into something. You know, the biggest challenge at Empire over the last two years has been: what do you do with a film magazine when there are no films coming out and no films being made? To put it in a very cross way. And I think we had to really lean back into our DNA. And at the heart of Empire, we are just a magazine that loves film. That's it, really simple. And so, you know, we had to really tap into that and work out how to still create a really great magazine without loads of new films. And that, I think, was us doing it perfectly. Because if you remember when it came out, cinemas had just closed again for the second time. They briefly reopened, closed again. And it was people were really, really sad. I remember me feeling, God, how many more months have we got without cinema? Mm. And we really wanted to tap into that emotion. The subs cover, which, you know, was if you remember, was the cinema front with There's No Place Like Home on it. We had an incredible um, illustrator do that for us who's done New Yorker covers, and it really felt like one of those. And then Bill McConkey did our actual newsstand cover which is the first time we've ever done a cover like that on the newsstand it's always would have been a subscriber kind of thing and it just hits sometimes with issues you'll hit a sweet spot and you know it and the i've never had so many emails about one issue we sold out i think twice and had to reprint the mag i cried reading it when i was reading the proofs never mind the finished magazine and that for me reminded me that empire was so much more than Here's a new film coming out and here's how it was made. 
which is can be could be the most reductive presentation of what empire is empire is about culture it's part of making culture it's part of being in that moment with somebody and reminding them why they love what they love in the way that they do and and that for me was the perfect perfect issue of any magazine i've ever edited i thought i was right myself uh <laughs> at daniel le w now we're getting into the weeds. How many people do you think watched The Greasy Strangler because of your recommendations <laughs> on the podcast? And how many of them do you think felt a bit ill afterwards? I will say... Most of the Empire staff, for will, one. Yeah, 11. <laughs> one thing I will say is that I... And I, I suppose all editors do this to a degree, but I, everybody who edits Empire has a slightly different taste in film and everybody who works on Empire does. So, for example, I've always said the news section of the magazine is always shaped in the personality of whoever edits it. You know, Phil Semlian, there would often be 57 foreign language films in there about <laughs> a tender but raw relationship. And, it, you know, the, the nuts and bolts are the same, but it's how you put that package together. And I do have these slight oddities in my taste house, wheelhouse, house of wheel. And they would, okay, I'd see something and get disproportionately excited um, and basically give them more coverage than any other magazine in the entire world. So Gracie Strangler, I got behind in a very, very big way. And I did have lots of people <laughs> saying they only watched it because of me continually banging on about it. But, you know, I felt the same about God's Own Country, which we championed very, very early and gave a huge amount of support to because we thought it was great. And I thought Francis was a really special filmmaker. And that's a big kind of responsibility, but amazing perk of the job is if you see something or see a filmmaker who you think is amazing, who, you know, maybe they don't have the ins with the industry or they're working class and they don't kind of move in the same circles or whatever it may be. Empire has the power to really get people to go and see your film. And I think that's an incredible power and an incredible responsibility. But yes, there have been, and I still stand by Greasy Strangler, by the way. That film is fucking brilliant. I stand by my four stars. I, I stand behind it, but but at a distance. <laughs> Covered in butter. I, 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 listen, I enjoyed the Greasy Strangler. Uh, it was it was good for yelling bullshit artist in the in the office. Oh. Do you remember the office? Oh, oh, the office. Do a lot bullshit artist. Yeah. yeah, I've been doing that. I was doing it before the film came out. It just the, the, the two the two aligned. At Ian T James, what's the worst mansplaining James has ever done? I mean. <laughs> Look, it's really hard to say when almost all of our interactions contain an element of splain. I don't know if we've had a splain-free conversation. Would you, James? I tell you when James was his most respect receptive to being splained. How about that? Okay. So when we made Pilot, and James is obviously more positioned on the digital side of the business... James, because James has got a mega brain, when he doesn't necessarily know how to do something, he decides he wants to learn, like a really keen little, like, weird child at school. Spotty schoolboy. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, and like, I helped James with learning about magazine craft and how you build a page and, and you know, how it should look visually and blah, blah. And what is this paper of which you speak? But, it, but I enjoyed that reversal in our relationship, which is James would come to me and go, is, should I do it like this? Is that right? And I'd be like, uh-huh. So th that was, I suppose, the most 
explain-free part of our working relationship. But, I mean, he hosts the podcast every Friday and it opens with me being audio bollocked. And then there's usually <laughs> more audio bollockings as we go. And if we're talking about, you know, fantasy or anything like that, then obviously that comes with mega-splaining. My 17-minute Game of Thrones monologue must have been up there. Which one? The recent one. <laughs> the fact that you can say which one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The 17-minute, not the 7 and a half minute. Yeah, it's not, not the 60-minute, it's the extended 17-minute yeah. version when I explained my retake on the final season of Game of yeah. Thrones to you. Jesus. And you, I believe, were doing possibly emails, possibly writing a feature. It's hard to say. You definitely weren't listening. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. Mm. Self-preservation, James. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody can listen to all of Coping that. Coping tactics. It's what a therapist would tell me to do. Unbelievable. A uh, couple of last questions and we'll let you go out into the cold, out of the great beyond. Uh, at Adam underscore Avery. Uh, if you could wipe one film franchise or TV series out of existence, stopping James, Chris and Helen ever being able to talk about it in your time at Empire, what would it be? I swear to God, if you say the MCU, then we're done. <laughs> no, you know I like the MCU. I've been trying to explain the MC- MCU to my boyfriend recently, which has been a, a challenge. So <laughs> this is the man who I took to see Avengers Infinity War. I'd already seen it a couple of times. I paid for us to go together. He's an asker of questions in cinemas. <laughs> so no. And he's never watched a Marvel film before he started, oh, he started no. with Infinity War. And he's whispering questions at me all the way through. It was... That was a dark day in our relationship. How I got pregnant <laughs> after that, I will never know, honestly. <laughs> I thought my body would have just learned to repel his sperm at that point, going... But, um, He's a keeper. You hold on to him. You hold on to him. I will say, I will probably say, due to the amount of my life recently that we've spent talking about it, I say take out C. Take out C. Oh, C, C, C. that's yes. just hot. C, the Jason, <laughs> hence my squad cast name, which is Terry Loves Bubba Voss. Bubba Voss, of course, being the Jason Momoa character in C, the hit Apple TV Plus series uh, created by Stephen Knight, which is amazing. I didn't even mind th- this opener of season two, did I? I gave it a fair review. <laughs> no. But what I do mind is James. <laughs> you don't sentence. hate the show, you hate how much I love the show. <laughs> yes, yes. And he will, you know, I can talk about anything, any kind of amazing, radical, revolutionary TV and I get ignored roundly by James and then we have to sit and listen while he enthuses like a toddler about something that we're not watching and as the host he has that control. I have to say last week's Pilot TV podcast which was our 150th episode may have been my favourite of all time if for no other reason than your extended review slash rant about Season two of C. Yeah. It was it was glorious. Which was mainly, to be fair, a rant at you about genre and not a rant about C. I actually said the world building was excellent in C, didn't I? I did have some of the issues with the, you know, acting blindness thing was not done particularly well. But I said C was very good at world building, that the performances, everybody, you know, pretended they did Shakespeare. But I think you'll find it was about you, not the show. That's fair. <laughs> so simply... Pilot's going to finish now, right? This is it. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a shame. It's a real shame. How do we soldier on without Terry? I don't know. I, I'm going to need to just pay people to come in and abuse me. I think there's a name for that. In, uh, yeah, in circles, yeah, but, there really is. Uh, <laughs> if, you look, if you look at the back of certain magazines, you'll be yeah, able to I find, can find people who can. Step in. I mean, yeah, maybe my post Empire life will turn out to be more challenging than I expected. And at that point, James, maybe we could come to an agreement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just for the shouting yeah Bellend. you could come in and just yeah this is a very bad flat plan oh look at this you put pint of milk in the middle of the news section that's bad 
Uh, right, so... Um, <laughs> oh, that was disturbing. Um, <laughs> all right, a couple of right. last questions, a couple of last questions. Uh, at Rodder's J04, of all the upcoming films yet to be covered, including, I guess, ones that haven't been conceptualised, is there one above all else that Terry wishes she could have stuck around for? There's one film in particular I'm very excited about, um, it, which is Petite Maman, which is Celine Siama's new film, Portrait of a Lady was very special to me. I talked about it, I think, on the podcast because it was the first film I took my son to see at Baby Cinema just when he was about six days old. It was also the last film he ever saw because then the pandemic hit and (laughs) that was that. But watching that film with him in a very raw state as you are as a new mother, a film that I had already fallen in love with, was amazing. I think she's a phenomenal filmmaker and on that point I have been desperate 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 to see Titan I mean she also Julia DeCorno similarly is just I mean Raw was weirdly I think in my first year at Empire and that's another one we really strongly championed because I was just absolutely blown away by it so both of those films are two that I was just I'm just missing out on seeing them but you should still see some amazing coverage in Empire on the next issue in particular you might want to look out for see this is why if I if I were uh, the editor I, I don't think I could ever leave because I'd be like oh if I leave oh but Eternals is just around the corner oh no but then there's Spider-Man the way oh no I can't leave I can't miss Doctor Strange in the multiverse. Oh no, they're Thor, Love and Thunder, and then you know I I I become calcified mm. and and die. Also, you would never send anyone else on a set visit yeah. ever. Oh God, oh, ever. none of you fuckers would ever get anywhere near yeah. a Marvel movie, and and quite <laughs> rightly so as well. Uh, at Isaac Moreno asks basically regrets. Anything you regret? Anything review cover feature? Any decisions that you made that you regret, and why? Molly's Game should have been a four-star film. That's your biggest regret. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks for coming. Don't you even start with me. Good Lord. Um, No, do you know what? Because I think when you you edit a magazine, you have to accept that you will make mistakes because you are human, you are fallible. You spend your entire day trying to make the right call on what you should cover, what what star rating something should get. Um, Should something go on the cover or is it too risky? Should something, does something deserve a feature or does something else deserve it in its place? You're making these assessments on, it's not really how good the film is, it's, it's, is there a compelling editorial journalistic story there and will the audience really respond to it? Is this what they want to read about in this way from this person? So I've definitely made mistakes, things I put on the cover that I shouldn't have done, people I should have commissioned instead of other people. Um, We should have given more support to X, Y and Z or less support to something. But I think that's part of the job. And all you do is try and make those mistakes as as uncatastrophic as as possible, really. But also you you surround yourself with the best people because it really is a, a, a collective that are constantly kind of, you know, making all these mini decisions all day long, which contribute to the, I'm not going to say bigger picture because I'm not a cop. Bangly bang. Mainly, but um, yeah, no major regrets. All right. Uh, Breders91, what three Stallone characters would you like to share a dinner table with? All at the same time. Because you've got to yeah. think about how they engage with each other as well. <laughs> okay. No, but you have. That's a very, very big question. That's true. So, so Lincoln Hawk, because you know what, like he's trying his best and he's still, <laughs> yes, he he should have 
not just written to his son, he should have gone to see him. And I know the evil granddad was keeping him away, but he had left his daughter and her mum and left her heartbroken. So I do think that he would need to be there. He'd probably be very sensitive and he'd probably be nursing a sore hand because I'm sure he's still engaging with arm wrestling, even though, you know, his son's all grown up and he doesn't need to do it. It's part of where he gets his fire and his passion. Obviously, Rocky Baldo, right? But can I choose a specific era, please? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course. I can't bear post-Adrian Rocky because the heartbreak that and the pain that he lives with is too much for me to be able to take, quite honestly. Fair so enough. I just think that's too much. So I think, for me, perfect Rocky is Rocky II Rocky, and that's not only because Rocky II is the greatest Rocky of all time, and that's a fact. That's because he has, you know, he develops out of that, film um his friendship with apollo because obviously they're initial initially adversaries they he trains him in three mickey's still alive so he's still got that relationship he's had success so he's not still living in an absolute dump adrian and he have got married so that for me is like peak rocky time and the absolute kind of the best he's gonna be the most confident like that's when he's really kind of sorted and he doesn't yet know about all of the money troubles and everything like that. That's about to hit. And then I'd say just for pure practical reasons of self-defense, I'd say John Rambo. And I'd say John Rambo in in Rambo 3 specifically, because I feel like, you know, that was him at his most kind of practical and pragmatic and he's still there's obviously the vengeance still but you know he's Mm. essentially a lean oiled up killing machine Mm. and if we got attacked i just think lincoln hawk would be too emotional (laughs) to be able to handle it and his hands are probably buggered from all those years on the table rocky from rocky 2 might you know he's still he'd be really good but he just wouldn't have the vision because you know rocky's a softy at heart he fights as a kind of a noble thing, but he never wants to hurt anybody. John Rambo, if it took it, he would, you know, get the business done. But we right. would need to keep him under control, so we'd probably want to de-arm him until it was absolutely vital and take, you know, the bullet things from across his chest. <laughs> that is possibly the most considered answer to that question. That, you know, <laughs> the, the, who would you invite to a dinner party and why? Because no one ever thinks about how they would have to interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, that's the... That's the thing. Yeah, that's that. So thank you for that answer. Two last questions. Everyone's been asking what you're doing next. So uh, that will be the last question. Uh, But there is one question specifically that I have lost because I'm an idiot. Uh, It's something about, here it is, at Mecca Lardzilla, what slice of northerness that Terry introduced to the team has been most universally adopted? I hope it's the term bellend, please. We were using the term bellend long before that. For me, it's chote. It's chuddy. Chuddy. Chuddy, which means chewing gum. And I think it's really the only true northern thing that's stuck because as I always point out to people, I'm not northern. So no, I'm from the Midlands. I'm from the Midlands, which James always acts like he discovered, even though I saw he, the same. he harangued <laughs> me for being northern for years, even though I wasn't, and then de- decided that I was a fake and a fraud because yeah. I wasn't from the north, like I kept telling him. Yeah, you deceived I mean, me. Someone should tell your accent you're not from the north. This is a Midlands accent. Chuddy. Anyway. Also, also, see also Ginnells, Ginnells. which are apparently some kind of alleyway, but I'm yeah, confused by that. Narrow and, alleyway. And cob, when you when one when one cobs things at another person. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So cobbers, cobbers that pen. <laughs> 
And then everyone's asking what you're doing next. What are you doing next? Do you know what? I honestly don't know. And I know you meant to like lie at this point and go, hey, I've got so many things. And I am having some pretty exciting conversations about a couple of jobs. And I'm also looking at potentially not getting another full-time job and doing my second book and the TV adaptation is looking very likely that will move ahead and I'll be working on that. So quite honestly, I actually couldn't tell you what I'm going to be doing in three months. And as I said, you know, leaving, deciding to leave Empire was incredibly tough. But after nine months back from mat leave, it was very clear that it was a job I could no longer do and that essentially the hours were unworkable with a son and I had to make a choice, quite honestly. And that's what drove the decision and it's something that obviously is going to drive the next decision. But hopefully I'll still be in film. I love film, but we'll see. And that's the genuinely first honest answer I've given to that question. <laughs> we'll see. See, that was a hint, wasn't it? You're going to go and work for Apple and work with Stephen Knight developing the third season of C. C will not be in my future. <laughs> Cannot believe you chose your son over Empire. What? That's disgraceful. What are you doing? We are all your children, Terry. <laughs> in a very Freddy Krueger sense. You're all my children now. <laughs> uh, anyway, we do have to let you go. Uh, Helen, James, do you want to say anything to Terry? Now will be a time to get anything off your chest, any grievances. <laughs> well, <laughs> luckily, list of grievances. I am doing a live pilot TV broadcast with Terry this evening. Uh, so uh, I'm keeping my powder dry for that soon to be absolute debacle. No, I'm, I'm just bereft. I don't know what we're going to do. But Terry will be fine. I'm not worried about Terry. I'm just worried about us. We'll be fine. Will we, though? It, listen, we managed to... We, we lost Morgan Reese, and we've managed to get past that huge loss. So <laughs> I think we can probably get past Terry as well. We were all bereft after Morgan left. Let's be honest. Empire will all... Let me just say, Empire will always, always, always prevail. It is a sum of its parts. You lot are absolutely the best editorial team I've ever worked with and I think the magic of the people the passion of the people the knowledge and expertise and care and respect and love of those people will make sure Empire will always be wonderful and I will continue to watch on with interested and probably at times jealous eyes <laughs> uh, it has been a blast I think it it's has. fair to say Terry because we're both thran that we we bumped heads a few times in the in the early days <laughs> uh-huh. uh, particularly uh-huh. but over the years I think our working relationship has changed immensely and I have come to regard you as someone I've met and that is <laughs> there is no higher praise no it's Chris, well I'm going to be sincere because, yeah, you drove me fucking mental in those first, like, in that first year especially. Two massive egos colliding. But you are the heart and soul of Empire and nobody, I think, means more to the brand or stands more for what Empire is and should be. And I think you are the thing that beats in the middle of it and I think that's incredibly important. I've got nothing but respect and something approaching love for you, Chrissy Witt. So what a fucking narrative arc is that? Likewise. Why Empire we- is bellend is what I took from that speech. I don't know if that's accurate. James but, is uh, the bellend of Empire. I'm the heart and Helen's the brains. Terry's... What are, what are you doing, Terry? Are you the... The eyes. The eyes. Terry's the eyes and James... 
James is the throbbing bell end and raging arsehole of, of, of Empire. And on that on that little sincere note, Terry, it has been an absolute blast. You are you are an amazing human being and an incredible editor, and we're very very sad to be losing you. Yeah, very. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye, Terry. Bye. 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 So Terry has gone. Terry has mm. gone, folks. She has. She has. She, she has. has disappeared into the ether. By the time people hear this, our live debacle, our live pilot would have happened. So it would have been and gone, so no one can now watch it live. But it is available, or should be available, if it worked, it will be available on the Empire YouTube channel. So maybe go and have a look. Oh. The last ever pilot TV podcast. <laughs> such, <laughs> you wish. Such a shame. Such a shame. Still go out on a high, huh? Yeah. 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 That's the plan. Or, or at least a medium. Uh, apologies, by the way, if you can hear banging and clanging in the background. The workmen who've been outside my building for the past six months are still here. A little overscheduled now, <laughs> but um, that's them. But hopefully you won't be able to hear it too much, if at all. Anyway, Terry has gone, but there's no room for sentiment. We can't dwell on such things on the Empire podcast because it's time to introduce this week's first guest. And it is Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Love that name. Uh, I love the second. The se- How many people do you know who are called the second? Like junior is usually what I would have gone for. But I, I wouldn't worry about him. It's when you run into Yahya Abdul-Mateen the fifth that you want to worry. Why is that? Because, you know, Candyman is five times. Oh, I see. Okay, that's very clever. And he comes and he kills you and he murders you. Yes. So it's a very good that's, meta that's, joke. That. That's very good. Yes. Very good. good. Uh, so he is, you'll, you'll have seen him make an impact uh, in films like James Wan's Aquaman, where he played Black Manta. Uh, and Damon Lindelof's limited edition series of Watchmen, where he played a character who I still don't think I can reveal no, quite yet not. in case people yell spoilers at me. Uh, and he is fast rising to the top of the business. He's going to be everywhere over the next few years. He's going to be in the Matrix Resurrections, as we now know it is called. He's going to be in George Miller's Furiosa. But you'll see him this week in Candyman, which is Nia DaCosta's reboot quill legacy sequel, whatever you want to call it to the original Candyman. It's confusing. It's one of those horror films that's a sequel, but it has the same name as the first movie. And he plays Anthony, who is an artist who gets embroiled with the legendary Candyman over there in Chicago. And very, very good he is as well. We sent along Mike Munzer, who is the host of the Evolution of Horror podcast, an excellent podcast that you should check out at your earliest convenience. Uh, Gravitate or miss entirely the episodes in which I feature, folks. And uh, Mike knows his horror. And uh, so we sent him along to Zoom, Zoom Town to have a good old chat with Yaya last Saturday while I was on a coach coming back from Anfield. And because it was Zoom, there were a few sound issues in this one. There may be a few times where Yaya dips, but we're going to try and cut around that as much as we possibly can. Here we are. Mike Munster talking to Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. Do please enjoy. Okay, we're welcoming to the Empire podcast Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. Hello, how are you doing, Yaya? Oh, lovely, mate. Oh. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, let me start. Off. First of all, congratulations um, on your role in Candyman. Fantastic job. And I loved the movie. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I think Anthony is such a he's a really interesting and he's a complex character. Right. And he goes on a real journey through this movie. Um, first of all, just tell me a little bit about your thoughts when you first read the script and this character. It's interesting. You know, I, I came into this project uh, and, and we didn't, we didn't have a script. So we had an idea, you know, um, I got a phone call from Jordan. He told me about Candyman and he, I'm, you know, my first impression is that, okay, this is kind of, 
is that, you know, a bit of apprehension, you know, um, because because it's Candyman and Candyman was <laughs> done well. And even though I didn't remember the movie or remember the plot of the movie, it it's just already iconic. And uh, so my opinion was that, like, why touch Candyman? There's no reason. There's no reason to touch it uh, unless there's a good reason, you know, and that and that's what came out of the conversation was that. You know, when you look at the story of Daniel Robitaille and how he was turned into into, into Candyman, and this and the the you know um, the the history of the the white violence that created created Candyman, you know that Candyman was born out of, and then when you you know bring that to um, but that was 2018, you know bring it to, to, to well, 2019, you know when you bring it to to the world in 2019. You know, there's so many parallels, you know, a very so many obvious parallels, you know, to the repercussions of uh, of, uh, of white violence against black bodies, particularly in America. Um, then I knew that there was a real opportunity to 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 do something interesting with the legacy of Candyman. Um, and uh, and we just took it from there. It's really interesting. Like you said, the way that the film deals with the legacy of Candyman, right? It also feels like it deals with a bigger legacy, the legacy of uh, black pain, of black characters and how they're portrayed in horror, but also black horror monsters, mm. right? Of which Candyman is such a famous example. Yeah, well, one of the themes in this one is, you know, um, one of the things that I take away is, is the, the, the process of how the, how the monster became the monster, you know? And and I, in the case of Candyman, you know, Candyman was turned into mo- into a monster against against his will. You know, he didn't he didn't choose to be he didn't wake up and choose to be a villain or die and then you know come back for eventual eventual death because because he was evil by because he lived and it was evil by nature. You know, uh, Daniel Robitaille was 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 an artist who was in love and who had who had aspirations. You know, and uh, and was turned into a monster after the fact. There's so many parallels from, you know, from, you know, uh, the, from current events when someone is murdered and, uh, and, and in the media, they're turned into a monster. They're villainized. You know, we bring up their past. We say, well, they, they weren't, don't feel sorry for them. They were actually a bad person and they, they did bad things. And, and, uh, and, and all of the dignity is taken away from the stories. In fact, a lot of the dignity was taken away from Daniel Robitaille even, or, or from Candyman, even in our recollection of him. You know, people don't really talk about uh, the fact that he was uh, that he was lynched. They don't talk about that. You know, they talk about about the hook and about the bees and about him as this scary, scary person. Granted, yes, his Candyman is fucking scary. You know what I'm saying? But but when we remove that part of the history in terms of how he became Candyman, then we then we ignore you know, really the root, the root cause, you know, and, and, in our film, uh, uh, we, 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 you know, we make an attempt to bring that back to the forefront of the, of the conversation. Yeah. That's such a good point. Cause even, you know, in the real world, the reputation that the, the original film Candyman has, I feel like mm-hmm. people remember it as this scary slasher about this guy who pops up in the mirror and kills people right but actually when you watch the film it's quite different to that isn't it and there is a lot more going on and it feels as though this movie is kind of reckoning with that reputation as well do you know what i mean yeah 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 definitely and and this is another thing about having a black writer having a black director at the helm this time is is that we get to we get to tell our own history we get to tell that you know the story of of our own trauma and to decide how it's remembered to you know to 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 decide how it's 
how it's digested. You know, um, storytelling is, is such a big part of, you know, of, of, uh, of, of this film. You know, we tell that, you know, uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan, that's his name. Uh, but uh, he t- he tells the story of uh, Candyman and that's how the story is, how Candyman lives on, you know, through through this storytelling, you know, and um, for us to be able to us as the creative team to be able to, to, to claim this story and to say, well, now this is how we want to tell it. It gives us the opportunity to, to uh, make sure that those details, you know, in the next 10, hopefully 15 or years beyond, you know, that those details are not, are not glossed over this time around. How much did you refer back to the original Candyman movie? Because obviously this is a sequel, but it's very much telling its own story. Um, how familiar were you with the original? I was I was just as familiar as sort of what we just talked about, you know. Um, uh, I, I knew about the iconography, but I had to I had to brush up in order to be reminded of the history, you know. Uh, but but I, I definitely knew about Candyman because it's, it's, it's Candyman, you know. I was five years old playing the Candyman game in the mirror and things like that, and and or not playing really not playing the Candyman game in the mirror, or, you know, attempting to but never having really having the courage to the courage to finish out, you know, you know to, to uh, follow through. Uh, so I was definitely you know familiar, but we did want to make sure that we did something that honored the first one, you know, um, but but that was able to uh, was able to stand on its own on its own merits as much as it could. It's so true as well. You know, you uh, growing up as kids, people are scared to even say the name in the mirror and all that kind of yeah. thing, right? The story has yeah. kind of transcended the movie even. Yeah. Um, and this movie, like you said, it's all about storytelling. It's all about folklore. I just wondered, did you, Yaya, did you grow up with any particular horror stories, any folklores, anything like that in your upbringing? Uh, it would have been Candyman. That's the that it would it would have it would have been not to be so you know redundant and spot on, but it, it would have it would have been it would have been Candyman. Uh, I think there was Bloody Mary. Yeah, uh, but no one we weren't really afraid of Bloody Bloody Mary. Didn't really pose a threat because uh, I don't think that there was a film. There was just the idea of it. So I never had a visual reference. I never had a visual reference. I'm not sure if other people did. And then in terms of some of the other it's outside of folklore, but when you talk about like Michael Myers and, you know, and, you know, and the like Freddy Krueger and things like that, they posed a different type of threat because I never really saw them where I lived. You know, Candyman was in the projects. And when I was young, we, we lived in the project. So it seemed really, really tangible. You know what I'm saying? It was like, man, Candyman could actually show up here. I take that back about Freddy Krueger because Freddy Krueger could show up in your dreams. And that's, <laughs> that, that is, that is scary, right? That's also scary right there to have someone show up in your dreams. Talk about not wanting to go to sleep or not wanting to look in the mirror. Imagine not wanting to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that is terrifying. A lot of sleepless yeah. nights, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, are you a big horror movie fan in general, Yaya? Do you watch a lot of horror movies? Do you get scared in horror movies? Uh, I haven't really traditionally. Like, I never really have gone to seek them out. I was always really the guy who was sort of a not a skeptic. I wouldn't go as that far, but I would you know, or, or, or cynic, I should say, but, you know, I, I would kind of go into scary movies and then say, well, look, I'm not like, I bet that I'm going to be the guy that's not going to jump. I would kind of watch <laughs> with my arms crossed and things like that. Um, and then I just gave that up. I said, bro, you're in a scary movie, like go to go with an open heart and have a great experience. You know what I'm saying? So uh, uh, that was probably me like shedding off the little macho, tough, <laughs> tough, tough shit and kind of, uh, you know, pivot into being more open minded. Um, 
but I do enjoy it now. But I, it's sort of like roller coasters, you know what I'm saying? Like I don't, I, I don't, I don't love roller coasters. But if, it, but if, it, if I'm at an amusement park, I got, I still got to get on the ride. You know, it's just something about signing up for that, for that experience that, um, that just, that you just can't, can't, can't be denied. You know. Yeah, and obviously you've worked with Jordan Peele before, and it feels as though right now we, you know, we're in a real golden age of horror movies. You know, uh, horror movies that are doing really well in the box office, but also very critically lauded. Horror movies are getting nominated for awards and this kind of thing. I just wondered, do you, do, why do you think that is, Yaya? Do you think there's a reason why right now filmmakers and storytellers are choosing horror? Uh, as their sort of storytelling genre. Well, I think I think that you know I think that the horror genre. I think people are finding new 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 opportunities. You know, I think if we, you know all around the world, you know, in, in the artistic space, people are saying, look, we want we want new fresh stories. You know, and I think that the horror genre gives us right now this. We're looking at it where in a way where it's not just about the scares. We're looking at different types of horrors. We're looking at psychological horrors we're looking at you know uh you know we're talking about uh things that could really happen in the real world and you know where uh the where the horror is more in the situation than it is about you know monsters and, and the boogeyman and things like that and we mix up a, a few you know a, we borrow from a couple of, the, of those elements you know but i think what horror gives us the opportunity to do is to uh, to tell stories about other horrifying, other realities that we consider horrifying, you know, and 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 uh, uh, um, and and so I think that that makes a really good, you know, a really good landscape to, you know, to paint inside of that inside of that uh, inside of that genre. I wonder if we're now going to get a, a kind of run of uh, virus pandemic horror films. I'm not sure we're all ready for that yet. <laughs> yeah, like you have like uh, there was a don't I think the movie called Don't Sleep. Mm. Then there was a movie uh, where where you couldn't you, where you couldn't see Bird Box was a was a horror of, of sorts where you yeah. know if you, if, you, if, you, if you see right. And then there was like uh, there's so many man there's so many coming <laughs> up. There'll be like well, now where you can't like like. Don't breathe. You know what I'm saying? That'll be a horror, a horror story. Everybody's afraid to inhale. That's it. Exactly. Stuff like that. Oh, no, I'm not ready for right, that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was your reaction when watching the finished film? Are you able to kind of watch Candyman as a as a, an audience member and kind of enjoy the roller coaster? Or are you too busy kind of thinking about the making of it, I suppose? A little bit. Right now, I'm not I'm not far enough away from it in order to watch it and appreciate it. Um, I'm going to go and sneak into a theater at some point in the next couple of weeks and go sit in the back and just kind of <laughs> relax and, and watch it that way. At present, I'm still too a little bit, a little bit too, too, too close to, to, to really see it, see if it wants to be uh, now. But I, I, I've seen it twice, once on my laptop, once in a theater by myself. And uh, and I did enjoy it, but I'm, I'm still a little bit too, too close to it right now. I um I watched, just watched it on a big screen this week and I, I loved all of the visuals. Um, Nia's kind of incredible uh, direction. Just tell me a little bit about working with Nia as a director. Yeah, Nia is she's a really, really, really special one. You know, I was able to have a have a friendship, you know, with her as a director. So we were able to talk as as peers and to really get on the same page. You know, it's it's nothing like being an artist and 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 trusting your director 
to really take care of your talent. You know what I'm saying? And to have someone to be able to confide in and say, hey, I don't know about this. Um, she's also extremely collaborative. You know, we I went over on the weekend to to do script revisions and things like that to really make sure that we were that we were all on the same page. So she 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 directs without ego. She knows what she wants and she will, you know, and she will and she will deliver. Um, but she also shares the space um, and, and uh, really, really incredibly smart. And she loves filmmaking. You know, she she gets excited about. She gets excited about making making films, and 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 that's that's that, that's always you know great to great to see in the film set because it becomes contagious. You know, it, it was one of those experiences that felt felt really pure because that that's her second you know film, but also I just think that that's also you know her her her, um, her heart. You know, there was uh, famously in the original right there were some really terrifying moments involving uh bees and there's all these stories about uh actors tony todd and virginia madsen actually having real bees on them and all of that kind of thing i just wondered what was the experience like for you was there anything close to that obviously we're in an age of probably much easier sort of digital effects and that kind of thing but was there any any kind of particularly grueling grueling moments for you on set no man you know they take care of the actors and better they they take care of the actors these days better you know what I'm saying? uh but i don't know i kind of wish man i was i, I kind of halfway wish you know wish i did have to deal with all the bees and halfway didn't i know tony uh, or you know uh the legend is that you know he had a bonus every time that he got stung he'd get a there was some type of bonus that he'd get for every sting you know what i mean I, <laughs> You know, I've never been stung by a bee, so maybe that's not something that I actually want to sign up for. But, you know, it sounds good. It sounds good in theory. It does. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but no, not so much, man. Will you ever be reprising this role again? Will there be more Candyman movies in the future, do we think? Uh, I don't think so. Not for me. You know, um, I think that I'm, I'm more interested in um, in terms of the future of Candyman. And I'm interested in. Uh, one, letting the movie come out first and, 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 and letting people, you know, decide what the movie wants to be. Uh, I'm really, really excited about the conversations that are going to, that are going to come from this, you know, the, 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 the life that, the life that the, that the film and that the legacy of Candyman is going to take on its own, you know, through, through, through conversations and through, you know, uh, the, in, through the way that our art will, will, ins- will inspire other filmmakers to, you know, to tell stories. And, um, so that's 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 I think in, in all honesty what I'm most excited about in terms of the future of Candyman right now, and then I think you know in terms of myself I want to take the inspiration as well you know from what we from what we accomplished here and you know move some and move that into some of the other projects that I'm developing you know you know that I'm making on my own. Um, that's 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 sort of you know how I how I think about you know taking the mo- the momentum from this project and and, and applying it uh, artistically. Yeah, I think the conversations around the film are going to be so interesting. There is so much to unpack mm-hmm. and talk about in there, mm-hmm. isn't there? And do you think that, mm-hmm. it, you know, the movie obviously was delayed, but do you think that there is anything, um, has anything changed about the way people might see this film or react to it in light of everything that happened last year with George Floyd and everything else? Yeah, you know, we always knew that, sadly, when we were making this movie, that it would still hold relevance, um, hold a hold a strong, you know, have a strong relevance in the world. And I think last year only proved that only proved that point. You know, a lot of times, you know, you make films not knowing what the world is going to be when it comes out. But sometimes you can anticipate that 
because we, we still have, because there's so much ground to be made up, you know, there's still, still so much progress to be made. You can sort of anticipate that within a year's time that your, your film will still hold, hold its weight. Um, and, um, you know, um, unfortunately it, it does and it does in the same way, but, you know, this movie could have been made 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and it would still have been absolutely relevant. You know, I think one of the things that happened last year was that we got to see and witness, um, you know, the, the subject matter that we speak about in this film on a global scale. Um, and so uh, I, I think that will allow more people to directly relate, you know, because of the, the unfortunate events of last year. And then um, if that uh, causes more people to take part of the, uh, you know, in the dialogue, you know, surrounding this film, then, you know, then I think then that could be, you know, that can be looked at as a positive thing. Uh, we're out of time. Yaya, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you, man. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so that was Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, and we will be reviewing Candyman. Candyman. You've definitely said it five times now. Have I? Of course. Of course what are the, the rules? Podcast. What are the rules? Well, surely if it's if it's interrupted, if it's if there are other words in between saying a name, then do you think so? It's like talking to Siri. Like when you wait a while, Siri fucks off, and then you have to summon Siri again. Yeah. So you can't just continue the command. Yeah. I mean, like if, I, if I were to say Candyman, 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 and then say a whole bunch of other stuff before saying the fifth time, yeah, and there's no mirrors involved, although it is oh, a webcam are, a mirror, because you know cameras, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, the cameras on these are reverse, so it is technically mm. a mirror. It is. Technically so I'm saying a it counts. Yeah. Oh, okay, but I think the Candy Men need to be consecutive. Let's see if I give it a minute, then we're fine. Maybe we just call it Sweetie Boy as much as possible. Sweetie Boy. That's what he would be called over here. Sweetie boy, not candy man. Sweetie, oh, yeah. I said it five times. That's it. That's it. Is that a hook behind you? Do I see bees in your room? Yeah, but that's because I have a hook and bees in my room. It's just, it's just, it's one of my kinks. Don't kink shame me, Jimbo. <laughs> Sorry. Oh boy. Uh, so anyway, we don't think we've been killed, or I've been killed by by him. But if that happens, you guys just carry on with the podcast, as we said. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we'll barely notice. No room for sentiment on the Empire podcast. Uh, just ignore the blood spouting from my severed neck. Can you sever a neck? You just can't. Anyway, yes. let's talk about movie news, shall we? It is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. And I said that Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, no, still hasn't appeared, was the star, one of the stars of The Matrix Resurrections, mm. which is now what we know Matrix 4 to be called because there is a big old jamboree called CinemaCon that happened in Vegas last week. Uh, my invitation must have been lost in the post, much like my invitation to the Disney Plus uh, party the other night. But, you know, it's fine. We we move on with these things. We get on with our lives. Uh, and amongst the many things that were revealed to the public at this uh, was footage from The Matrix Resurrections. And, of course, that title reveal. That's mm. exciting, isn't it? I mean, nothing ever went wrong with a Matrix film that had a second word in it in the title that began with re. So I think this is great <laughs> news. <laughs> but would that, like we referred to this as the Matrix, Matrix Resurrections for quite a while before we kind of safely retreated back to the Matrix Four, didn't we? Because this was an early rumored title for the film, so uh, it? and it makes the most sense because they they only go with re subtitles. So you know the Matrix release, the Matrix re Hashed. audited, like Rehashed. it makes sense. <laughs> Rehashed, yes. Well, I mean that might have been a more accurate one, but look, I like this. I think it works. It's fine. Yeah, you know, it's, it's no indicator of quality of the film, but it's a good start that they managed to find a re-word that thematically fits with the film. Well done, you. Yeah. Yes. 
Well done, everybody. And so the early word in the footage is that it all feels very much like the first Matrix. So you have Neo or Thomas Anderson, as he is, uh, going about his business in the Matrix, unaware of his history. And then he bumps into Trinity, but she doesn't know who she is either. And then someone comes along and there's red pills and blue pills and then all sorts of weirdness happens. So I'd be Hmm. very interested to see how much new ground this one plows but clearly Lana Wachowski feels that there is new ground to be plowed and you know she wouldn't have got all those people back uh, if they hadn't agreed so Mm. yeah Neil Patrick Harris as his therapist yeah so do we think that Doogie Howser MD has you know added a new specialty (laughs) to his bow what are the letters what are what are a psychiatrist's letters after their name don't know I'm afraid yeah no idea I'm sensing I'm sensing some apathy from you guys you're not excited no, about look, the I'm new Matrix super excited I'll be there on opening day are you kidding me I mean the Matrix is one of the great cinema going experiences of my entire life like the first time I saw that film just oh, it's amazing it's incredible yeah and um and then there were two others well I, I'm hoping that lightning can strike twice this film mm. nearly didn't get me the Empire job. This was one of the questions in the interview, which is better, Reloaded or Revolutions? Did I ask her that? Yes, you did. <laughs> what did you say? I th- I don't re- I think, oh, was one of them not out at the time? And it was like, are you still excited for Revolutions? Maybe that was the question. Anyway, there was a question about the Matrix sequels and it was very stressful. I mean, that sounds, that sounds, I actually did some job interviews recently and uh, one of the people did say that it was one of the most stressful job interviews they'd ever had. And I thought, I don't think I'm that bad. I mean, I may have quizzed them quite aggressively as to why they didn't listen to the Pilot TV podcast every week. But hey, I'm saying that's an essential question. Because they're normal people who have sense. <laughs> we did, in fact, review normal people on the Pilot TV podcast. Oh, Go back to the episode oh, and you geez, can listen to geez, it now. Oh, God. Uh, I cannot hey. wait to do these things in person. I'm going to slap the fucking pilot out of you. I swear to God. Let's talk about superhero movies. Yes, there's been... A trailer. There have been multiple trailers, haven't there, Helen? It's almost as if you guys spoke about one at length in a special podcast. Well, I was going to set that up. Yes, so the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer came out this week. And um, and we did, <laughs> we somehow, and I, I still don't know how, we, on this two minute, 30 second teaser trailer, we talked for an hour, uh, mm-hmm. Chris and Ben and I. So uh, my apologies to everyone involved for that, but that is live in your podcast feeds. So mm-hmm. do check that out, should you well, so desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good trailer, good trailer. Good trailer, um, very good trailer. Think, well, should we talk for another hour now about it? Jimbo, no, you... I think let's let's okay. maybe show some. But Jimbo wasn't on the podcast. So Jimbo, Jimbo, you, you have, I'm going to give you 23 seconds to, to sum up your seconds. thoughts about the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer. Okay, when I heard that it was going to be multiverse and they were bringing in people from the other Spider-Man, I thought this was a load of old fucking shit and I wasn't happy about it at all. (laughs) However, having watched this trailer, I am sold. I think it's great. And the only thing I think is sad is that inevitably I think he'll end up in a parallel world where Venom and Mobius exist as opposed to the MCU. And that's unfortunate. Oh, I don't know about that. But okay, sure, I guess. Whatever. Oh, no, no. I don't like it. Because no. because the the Sony Spider Man universe, which is what they're kind of calling their sort of slice of this this mythology, you know, it feels like that's where he's going to end up. Obviously, the deal is that he there's going to be another unspecified MCU appearance at some point in the future. But theoretically, this it makes sense that if they're going to want Spider Man to appear in their other Spider Man adjacent properties, using the multiverse to kind of hike him into the Venomverse uh, they, would make sense. Are they sense. calling it that? I, last are, yes. I heard, they were calling it something much more unwieldy. Spump. 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 <laughs> yeah, as an acronym. Yeah. The Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. Yeah. Uh, well, they said a thing recently that they changed it to the Spider-Man. I read this this week. I seem to, unless I dreamt it, which is entirely possible. But I seem to recall so. they mentioned it as it was the Sony Spider-Man universe or something. It was very Spider-Man centric. Mm. So, 
dressing. Uh, Who knows? But spunk would be better. Spunk, I would prefer yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we, I, we I, I don't see. think that's going to happen. I don't think I, that's going to happen either. because you could very well argue that the reason that both these Spider-Man movies have done really, really, really well and the reason why this one is going to do really, 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 really well and it could be the movie along with No Time to Die to get bums back on seats and back in cinemas mm-hmm. properly. And, and Dune, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. it's certainly two of those three films will do that. Uh, I saw a film this week, I'm not going to uh, identify it, but I saw a film this week in an actual cinema and I was the only person there. Now it was a 5.30 screening and it was on a Wednesday, but it still made me think and I've heard lots of reports of cinemas still being not even half empty, that people aren't confident enough to go back to cinemas yet. And uh, that's entirely their right to feel that way, of course. But I would hope that these big blockbusters, these big must-see only in cinemas movies will get people back in in cinemas. And Spider-Man No Way Home should do really, really well. And a big part of that is because it's connected to the MCU. Mm, I think so too. You take that away, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to see him fighting Venom and Morbius. And I know we don't, but I think Sony feels slightly differently. I mean, I they think- are pressing ahead with Morbius. We have a second Venom film. The first Venom film did unimaginably quite well. Mm. So look, you know, mm. I think we may not want to see these two things collide, but I think they will. Maybe so. We shall see. But yeah, I don't, I don't think you have to break ties with the MCU to have Spidey fighting Venom. But, anyway. yeah, but then if you don't, then Venom becomes part of the MCU and nobody needs that. Not necessarily. They can still preserve these kind of Chinese walls about that. Anyway, in other comic book news, Ironheart is going to make her debut in Wakanda Forever. So that is very exciting. That's Dominic Thorne obviously playing the role. She's the kind of much younger Tony Stark uh, equivalent. Uh, she's also a genius. It will be interesting to see her potentially interact with Shuri, given that Shuri did not have the greatest of respect for uh, Tony and Bruce's work. I'd be interested to see what she thinks of Ironheart. That'll be interesting. And also over in the other family of superheroes, uh, Black Canary is getting her own movie. Journey Smollett, obviously starring. Misha Green is set to write. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, but it may not. Actually, to be honest, I should have slightly caveated that it's either a series or a movie it's not quite clear yet ah so um we shall see okay i've been watching a lot of journey smollett recently uh because i'm re-watching friday night lights for the other podcast that i may have already mentioned uh and she joins it in season four there you go she's very good she was very good in lovecraft country as well jimbo you must be excited about downton abbey too or downton abbey to downton to abbey yes sadly they didn't go with that title they have now called it downton abbey a new era and there was some teaser footage also revealed the cinema con that's where they really lost her shit mm. downton abbey the next generation was surely the obvious title for this a new era where are we up to now we were in 1933 before is that right sure 29, 33, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm here for all the Downton all the time, as you, you well are. know. I don't know where it's set. I don't know when it's set. I don't care. Uh, all I care is that Mrs. Pat Moore is making pie. I just, I, I don't understand. I don't. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Anything else, folks? Any other bits of movie news? Yeah, a few bits. Um, there's going to be a Witches of Eastwick remake, which is which is interesting. So that's, of course, the 1987 comedy with Susan Sarandon, uh, Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer having an affair with the devil, played by Jack Nicholson. Um, mm-hmm. This is going to be a bit of an update, apparently, and I don't know much more about it. So it'll, that'll be interesting. It's um, Ninja Thyberg. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. I almost certainly am who is going to be writing this one following the success of her film Pleasure, which has been doing very, very well at festivals. So, yeah, all right, cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it all sounds good. A uh, bit of a slow week, weirdly enough. I think in terms of movie news, despite the fact that uh, CinemaCon has been going on, there's been lots of things happening at CinemaCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, footage reveals of Jurassic World Dominion and Ambulance and Scott Derrickson's Black Phone and all sorts of, of big old movies. But we weren't invited. So quite frankly, fuck them. There's a couple of other things I should very quickly mention. Um, McKenna Grace has joined Olivia Wilde's film Perfect about the US gymnastics team with Thomas and Mackenzie already on board as uh, Kerry Strug. So that'll be interesting. She's very good. It's good to see her getting some more grown-up roles. And the trailer went online for this very weird Alan Moore-written thriller called The Show, which stars Tom Burke as a detective, so instantly looks like Strike, but with weird shit going on. It's a choice. I, I didn't love this trailer, I'll be honest, but I do like Tom Burke, so I'm, so I'm interested to see what happens there. Regular listeners will know that we have, over the last few months, actually been detailing the casting of Steven Spielberg's new movie, which we knew was going to be loosely based on his childhood and stars like Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen and Paul Dano. But uh, this week they've announced the title Ooh. and it's going to be called The Fablemans. The Fablemans. Fablemans. Okay. So... Reading something into that fable, fable man, man who likes fables, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. storytelling kind of yeah. malarkey. All right, and sure. uh, Matteo Sorion Francis de Ford is going to play basically the young Spielberg. Okay, so that's so that's nice. Well, or, or young Fableman, mm. not Spielberg, obviously. Sure, uh, of course, totally different person. Allowing to take liberties uh, with things that went on in his childhood and all the stuff that inspired him to become the most successful director in the history of motion pictures. Mm. I think he still is, right? I feel like. The Russo has happened to usurped him over the last few years just just by sheer dint of directing four Marvel movies. Three, two, one. Oh, I was expecting James to say James Cameron, but here we are and he hasn't. Sorry, it's almost like I wasn't listening. Hmm. I yes. mean, it's, it's, it's a lot to ask, you know, to get you to pay attention for the one and a half hours we spend recording this podcast every week. I, I know, I, just... I know it's bad. It's bad of me and I feel bad for asking you to do it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if you could try to be more interesting, that'd be fabulous. All right. OK. No, James Cameron's not more successful than Steven Spielberg. Well, Is no, he? I'm just saying like there's maybe a conversation to be had, right? Mm. But In like terms how... of sort of hit to miss ratio, he is surely the most successful filmmaker of all time. In terms of given the, the the limited number of films he has made and how many of them have been the, the most successful film of exactly <laughs> like the man's done pretty fucking well so I imagine there's some kind of arcane sort of dollar related formula that shows he is the most successful filmmaker of all time he has but I'm talking about in terms of just pure statistics like which filmmaker has made the most money over the years it's got to be Spielberg right I mean I could probably look this up because well, it's definitely yeah. on Google but yeah. doesn't he produce sort of every third movie and every second TV show ever made like but we're not counting we're just direct directorial okay. vehicles only okay. Because he's made so many more movies than James Cameron, doesn't that give him an unfair advantage? It would do, but also he didn't make either Aliens or Terminator 2, which instantly disqualifies him from any list of greatness. Yeah, but also Cameron didn't make Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws, so like... This is also true. And I don't think either of them made uh, Welcome to Collingwood or You, Me and Dupree, (laughs) so that rules him out of the Russo's uh, argument also. 
Anyway, listen, we could talk about this one for days. This could be a podcast in itself, but I think that's it. I don't think there's an awful lot of movie news knocking around this week. Um, so maybe we shall spiral into this week's second guest, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And our second guest this week is, of course, the one, the only, the wickedly talented Jude Law. Yes, indeed. He is one of our finest actors, one of our most handsome men. I mean, just look at him. Walk around him, Helen. No, I, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing, Chris. No, just you know, just take take a tour, take a tour of Jude Law. Start 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 at the earlobes and work your way down to the ankles. Whoa, steady on, Chris. This is a family podcast. <laughs> really kind of, isn't. Kind of chat about ankles here. Good lord. It's the Manson family podcast. That's been that's been honest. <laughs> anyway, Jude Law. He is a fantastic actor. He is an Oscar nominated actor. Uh, he is a wonderful human being. And uh, over the last couple of years, he has begun to make a. He's begun to deviate into playing. How should we say? What's the Empire podcast word? Bell ends. Uh, uh, toxic men. Captain Marvel, for example, he wasn't Captain Marvel in that, uh, but you know he was the he was the evil toxic man. And there is another toxic bell end, as in a man, not the anatomy, in this week's Liness, which marks the return to directing of Sean Durkin, who made Martha, 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 Martha all those uh, years ago. You weren't looking in the mirror, were you? Martha, Martha, <laughs> made Marlene. That's yeah. the one. <laughs> I can't really even remember the Martha part of that. Uh, anyway, he is fantastic in the nest. And uh, we sent along Beth Webb to Zoomtown this week to have a good old natter with Jude about a great many things. So here we go. Beth Webb talking to Jude Law. Enjoy. Hello, Jude. Hello. Hi. Hi. Great to speak with you. How are you? How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, so much for, for speaking to us on the Empire Pod today. My uh, absolute pleasure. Wonderful. I mean, I'd love to just kick things off by by talking about Rory, your character in The Nest, who is this fascinating character study. You've got this this honey-tongued charmer who kind of unravels in front of your eyes. And I would love to know um, if you could tell me about how you approach this character. The right place to start was the first time Sean Durkin uh, and I met. I, I, I really loved his work and... Um, it was very clear from our, our, our just initial meeting how he was a you know collaborative and um, friendly, warm, interesting guy, uh, and I loved the script. There was something accurate and honest and really touching about the portrayal of this family. The the issue I had was with Rory, funnily enough, and I, I, I on the page I didn't like him at all, and and I think the discussion started. And the evolution of Rory started right there and then. Sean and I looked at why he was unattractive on one level, and yet, you know, these people followed him. And how was it, or how could we warm him up? How could we make him more understandable, more relatable? And that led us to really just try in detail to build up a sense of who he was from infancy, childhood, right up to the, the starting point of the story. And by understanding what he'd come from, maybe what he had endured as a kid, what he had broken out of, and, and how he had made himself who he was, might, at least for me, m allow me to understand his actions. And I suppose it, it, it's a fascinating, it was a fascinating part to play in many ways, but one, most, one, one mostly because you realize, I suppose, when you look around you, how many people you know who are 
performing in many ways. You know, people people discover a way to survive. They discover a way, or they you you know, they discover uh, ways in which to project a, a better side of themselves. It might be an inflated sort of sense of humor or volume or. Or it might even be disappearing inside themselves and being cool and, and, and hanging back. I don't know. But over the years, that becomes you. It may not be you at your core, but it becomes you. And I think that was on my mind quite a lot, playing Rory. That This is very much a, a story of a man who is led by the love of his family, but also his, his own actions to look back at who he was, who he is, and to, as you rightly said, sort of dismantle and unpeel himself before his family just falls apart mm. and then with that in mind and what you've said about this performative aspect of the character how does that play into the dynamic of the marriage and then how was that to to bring that work that you'd you'd done ahead of stepping onto the project into that dynamic with Carrie Coon who is obviously incredible and delicious in this film yeah she is I, that's a good word to use for her she is um and not, you know, okay, well, I, I think the dynamic, the way it affected the family was that I, I did a lot of my work and then discussed with Sean how much we needed to share with Carrie. So there was a certain amount of Rory's background and, and uh, motivations that, that Carrie playing Alison didn't need to know. In fact, we, we spent time looking at or discussing how they met and, and, and what they did for each other. And then also we looked a lot at the sort of complicit nature of relationships that, you know, it becomes very comfortable allowing your partner to behave in a certain way or the way they, the way they provide for you may be dubious, but nonetheless, you like the thing that they provide. And again, that's, I think, very much at the heart of this piece. This is one of the things that attracted me most to it was that this is a drama about a family that, that, that there's no, there's no um, affair. There's no death. There's, you know, it's a family surviving. It's a family traveling a very short journey, but, but through a very intense space of their life. And um, both of them, I suppose, recognizing that they need each other, but equally they have to be more honest. I wanted to come back to Sean because he made this astonishing debut uh, nearly 10 years ago with, um, and I always get the names wrong, but Martha Marcy May Marlene. Um, and yeah. When his name cropped up, were you familiar with who he was and was there a certain level of expectation that came with that? I was absolutely familiar. I um, had seen and loved that film, uh, uh, Martha Marcy May Maylene, and I had really enjoyed it. And I was, I think, like most people, very curious to see what else he'd been doing. Um, it had been quite a long time. He, he produces a lot. He writes for other people a lot, I believe. But he was this really interesting uh, young talent who, to me, you know, um, was still sort of fresh. What was, what was he, what was he, what, what, where was he going to point his sort of curiosity next? And um, he, he came back to England to make Southcliffe, I think, in the sort of 20, around 2010 or 2011, maybe a bit later, actually. Mm. And... Um, I think rekindled the connection with England that he had as a child. His, his father was English. And that really, I think, started the seed or, or planted the seed for this story. And as I mentioned, when I met him, it was pretty clear from the get-go that, that, that the, the subtleties and the warmth and the precision that you see in his films is very much who he is. And 
it was uh, an incredibly pleasurable experience working with him. Um, it was, I, I'm looking back, because it was a couple of years ago now. It was, it, I wouldn't say it was effortless, but it was pl incredibly pleasurable because we were all very happy to be there and very happy to work on this complicated but wonderful material. But, you know, that's when the job is at its best, when you're very happy at work and you're working hard and everyone's there wanting to, to convey this story or to project this story, create this story as accurate and as holy as possible. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask more about your approach to collaborating because you've worked especially, well, throughout your career, but especially recently with some remarkable collaborators, Brady Corbett with Vox Lux, and I know you're working with David Lowry coming up, who's, whose career has blossomed into these big epics that he's now making. And I yeah. wondered, what is driving you at this stage when it comes to, to working with directors? I suppose, well, with those three that you mentioned, I would say that the work that they'd done, that I'd seen, the energy and the uh, vision that they all had, all in very different ways, um, there was something incredibly revitalizing for me as someone who had been in the business nearly 30 years, working with younger directors who had huge uh, uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, passion for filmmaking. It really... And it, it really sort of inspired me and gave me a sense of uh, uh, promise, I suppose, that, that, that things could, I could still learn and that there was still, there was still potential. And I know this sounds perhaps odd, but really just personality. I, I really, you know, I've got no, I don't, I don't, I've been very lucky. I've worked with almost no sort of uh, screamers and shouters. I've worked with no sort of divas, you know, uh, in the directing role. And the, those three men that you mentioned, and it's something that, you know, it's really important when you collaborate, when you work with someone, is that you get on. And that those three are particularly lovely men um, in, in, in every regard, both, both in, in how they conduct themselves sort of away from a film set, but also on a film set. And that has a big effect on the experience when you make it, but I also believe it has an effect on the film you see. The people on a film, in a crew, are happy and um, working closely, usually because the director is keeping that dance alive and, and going. And um, I think that has a, goes a long way to making a film um, successful, at least in its spirit. Absolutely. That is something so palpable, especially with, like you say, with those directors, especially. Um, and we're talking about the, this collaboration and this, this spirit on a film set. I mean, I imagine there's no collaboration more rooted in trust than with Mark Munden and, and what you did with The Third Day. And I wanted to know now, you've, you've come through that project now. You've come through it and come out the other side. <laughs> What's it like to kind I of... I survived. <laughs> exactly this. What, what was it like? What's it like now to kind of look back on that, to come through something so remarkable and unique and look back on it? How are you, how are you feeling about it now? I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who stop, tends to stop and, and look back, funnily enough. So honest, quite honestly, you asking me is an opportunity for me to just take a moment and reflect. Um, there was a sense even before I went back to do the live event where I, the whole experience was actually quite uh, <laughs> scarring. <laughs> um, I'd never played anyone so raw and so vulnerable and on a daily basis and over such a long period of time. 
And I think the dislocation also of being on this island for so many weeks, months, and um, really in an other sort of environment added to all of that. But then going back, first of all, it was the completion of a, of a very long journey that started some seven or eight years ago. So to really, to really be true to my word, but you know, true to all those uh, uh, collaborators around me and to, to see it through was a phenomenal sense of reward. And the actual experience, I mean, for those who saw it, or, or you know, people often are, are, are ask about, gosh, you know, because it was very physical. How did you get through it? And I mean, to be honest, that side wasn't the hardest side. The hardest side, I suppose, was sort of being uh, uh, true in the moment as opposed to, uh, looking for opportunities to sort of break um, and 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 uh, in some way gather one's thoughts. So it's like I lost a day as myself, but I gained a day through the eyes of someone else. It's like me asking you about a day, say last summer, which you know you would maybe remember because you went to meet some friends and you'd have vague memories, and then the more you thought about it, the more you remember detail. Well, because in that whole day I was in the life of someone else, my memories of the day are the weirdest memories of sort of people coming up whispering in my ear or throwing me over or um, this strange sort of rabbit hole I went down when I was digging in the mud. I had no idea how long I was doing that for until afterwards when someone said, yeah, that was like 45 minutes. We, we, we just, <laughs> and I, I was lost. Um, in a wonderful way, that makes me sound perhaps slightly masochistic. I'm not, it, it was honestly, it was first of all something that I wanted to see if I could do myself, if I could do, if I could pull off. But also, I was fascinated by the idea of time being an element of a performance, like just going with it and spending as much time in it as possible. I probably now, on reflection, sound like a madman. I apologise. <laughs> 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 I think that and that's great as in terms of this, especially because it came out at a time where time felt like a very malleable thing as well. Yes, I think. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Um, we're coming to the stage in your career. Like you say, you've been you've been working for, for 30 odd years now, but I know that your earlier films have really devout fan bases. Like there's there's such a joy in seeing films like Closer getting a second life through like new audiences and yeah. obviously the holiday. And now that you are at this this stage in your career, I was wondering who is who do you get stopped on the street the most for today? Who is the <laughs> character where you're stopped and said, I, I loved you as? Like, like who is that today for you? Gosh. I wouldn't, I don't know that one stands out. Depends. It depends on who it is that stops me. <laughs> what gender and what age group. There's a lot of, there are a lot of. Uh, Sherlock Holmes fans out there who always want to know when we're making another one. There are a lot, obviously a, a huge amount of Wizarding World fans. The Holiday has a massive following. And then there are quite a few science fiction fans who like films like um, Gattaca and Existence. So it's quite a broad, wow. quite, I suppose, I suppose on reflection, it's quite a broad um, smorgasbord of, of, of people and, um, and regard. Yeah. Interesting. I, I couldn't put my finger on there being one particular um, film or part. I think if I were pushed, it would have to probably be the holiday. You know, I guess the holiday is because of it. It's a seasonal kind of favorite and it comes around every year and some people enjoy it, you know, every Christmas. And then the franchises, the Wizarding World franchise or Sherlock Holmes, you know, those things, mm. again, gain fans who buy the comic, buy the t-shirt, buy the 
toy and <laughs> <laughs> um and I mean that those stories some of those stories especially they're you know iconic works of literature beloved stories by by generations who pass on to generations are there any stories or personalities that you are like dying to bring to the screen or anyone that you're you're absolutely dying to tell their story yourself there are a couple and, and I'm kind of working on them at the moment funnily enough I'm busy developing probably will be for the rest of the year this year anyway couple of projects um through my own company i don't know that i want to mention them yet uh, <laughs> but there are there are all I, I i love reading and i love uh, trying to see everything whether it's a documentary or film feature and um i'm always sort of on the lookout and uh i, I think now more than ever the the industry favors uh you being actors being slightly more proactive in sort of conjuring up what or maybe that's just my career. I mean, I, I get restless and I kind of want to generate or know what I'm doing next or, or have a, a, um, a finger in what I'm doing next. And, or maybe it's just because as I get older, I'm thinking more about the kind of parts I haven't played and want to play and the kind of, you know, people I want to work with. And so I want to try and instigate that before I'm just cast as the grandfather. <laughs> trying to manifest these younger roles quickly <laughs> i wouldn't say younger middle-aged roles i'm not going to be playing anyone in their 20s any day soon <laughs> you've done franchises before you've worked with you know huge filmmakers on huge like science fiction especially but yeah. you know how did marvel change things for you i don't know that it changed it didn't necessarily alter the course of my career. Uh, it came about and I was really curious to look at how they were doing what they were doing. Uh, I mean, my film, the film that I was a part of rather, came along quite late in the day and I was really happy to be, you know, what felt like, not secondary, but, you know, not a kind of front centre uh, participant, but really grateful to be able to see how this behemoth uh, operated. And it was truly unique to anything I'd ever worked on. It had this branching infrastructure that allowed, you know, these different creatives at the heart to come in and tonally affect the, the, the project at hand, but that outside of that, it was able to operate with these far reaching arms and keep the whole thing in sync with all these other projects. And it was an extraordinary operation. Um, on the one hand, as you know, it like, like an incredibly finely run machine. And on the other hand, very personal and very fun and sort of, um, well, certainly with Anna Bolin and, and Ryan Flett, the two directors I work with, on the day we were trying all sorts of stuff, improvising and playing. And that's obviously what they wanted to bring. That the, the, the Marvel team wanted them to bring to this particular piece. And um, listen, I'm of the mind that, that I, I love the opportunity as an actor to work on smaller films like The Nest um, or Vox Lux and then enormous films like Peter Pan and Wendy or um, uh, Captain Marvel. And I think it, it gives me an opinion, it gives me a perspective, and it gives me, you know, um, a point of view where I kind of just, I'm, I love filmmaking and I like the idea of understanding how all these different types of film make, because of course each one is put together very differently. Yeah, thank you for speaking to us today. The film is wonderful and I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you, Jude. Thank you, thanks for having me.
Okay, so that was Jude Law, and you would ordinarily think that we would then start the review section with Lynest, but we're not. We're not. There's no room for sentiment or logic in our podcast. So we're going to start instead with Candyman. And before we get into that film, whose name I should not say more than five times in a row, because as we've established, webcams are mirrors. Uh, Terry may have gone, but we have replaced her in the fourth chair with a newcomer to the Empire podcast. Please welcome Katie Smith-Wong. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at all. You have parachuted in because uh, we're all idiots and we haven't managed to see all the films and you very helpfully have seen every movie ever made. <laughs> that's my yeah. understanding. That's, my, that's, that's how I, this was sold to me, that you had seen every movie ever made and you were going to pay us £100 each. Yes, yeah, so I don't have any room for anything else besides films. <laughs> as, right. as Katie's lawyer, I'd like to make it clear that neither of those things were claims that you were told. That's a conflict of interest. You're my lawyer too. So yeah, that's, well, we you know. can't make that. We will know. have you disbarred. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll never work in Starbucks again. Right. Oh, shoot. It'll, it'll be for cost of them. Damn it. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, right. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Welcome, Katie, to the podcast. And we're going to start with Candyman. Candyman. No, Candyman. stop it. Candyman. Helen, <laughs> you have the name that is perfect for Candyman because, as we know, in the 1992 film Candyman, the lead of that movie is not Candyman, but is Helen, played That's by true. Virginia Madsen. So yeah. uh, are you, in fact, in love with a big fella with a hook for hand? I mean, no, no. but I mean, it, I've been single for a while now, so hey... <laughs> Uh, open to offers. Bees are no longer a deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, I think the Wicker Man's ruined bees for everybody. The yeah, bees. I think bees. It, is, it is harder to keep them, take them seriously now, isn't it? Anyway, this is the reboot call from uh, Nia Da Costa. It is stunningly made. I have to say, I think she's oh an incredible God. talent, and it takes up the story of Candyman. I have to say, if you have seen the original films, I think you will find connective tissue here if you haven't mm -hmm. they do build in some exposition without it being tiresome in a way that i find very effective but our heroes if you will are anthony played by yaya abdul mateen ii and brianna his girlfriend played by tiona paris they are respectively an artist and a gallerist and he's been struggling he's been looking for some some new ideas some new inspiration when he hears the story of helen lyle of of what happened with this researcher who appeared to go crazy uh, in the area all these years before. The area has now been gentrified. So he thinks there's something there. There's some story about what the area used to be, what it is now. And he starts digging into and researching this story to try and find out more, which of course uncovers things that are perhaps uncomfortable for everyone involved. And wouldn't you know it, before it goes too much further, people are saying names in mirrors five times. Other people with hooks for hands, no disrespect to those with hooks for hands, but this particular person is turning up and, you know, dismembering people limb from limb. There is a lot of body horror to a degree that I perhaps foolishly didn't necessarily brace myself for in advance. But there's also just incredible shooting, incredible unease and tension building. Um, very good performances from the cast, which also includes uh, Coleman Domingo and mm. Vanessa Williams and Brian King and people like that. Really, really good people. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really creepy. I was creeped out. And I am a wimp, though, so you should like control for that. You may be like, ugh. I've seen worse before breakfast, but no, but I no. was I was right. Okay, not just me. Chris is a proper horror kind. 
I think uh, no, I, I think this is a really interesting film, and I mm. think uh, one of the interesting things we're going to get into. I'm looking forward to getting into in our spoiler special for it because Mike Munzer not only interviewed Yaya, but he also interviewed Nia DaCosta for a spoiler special, which we'll be putting up in the next couple of weeks. We haven't recorded our bit yet, but one of the things I'm really interested in is the sort of, and there's a tension in the film, I think, between mm. Nia DaCosta's more art house sensibilities. I think this thing is, is shot beautifully. It's framed beautifully, yeah. framed meticulously. And there's some wonderful, there's a wonderful evocation of, of mood and an unsettling mood. And then there are some really violent slasher movie sequences that almost come out of nowhere. And I really, really like the film. I'm not entirely sure that it bridges the gap between those two approaches particularly well. But the first movie, one of the things Candyman, I think, over the years has had a reputation as being a pure slasher film. And it's not. It is absolutely not. If you go back and look at the 1992 film, the Bernard Rose movie, based, of course, on a short story by Clive Barker, set in Liverpool, uh, which was then relocated to Chicago. It's a very, very interesting movie. It's it's a twisted love story. It's it's not... A, there are people dying, people are slashed, but it's not a slasher film, yeah. necessarily. Um, but one of the things that movie did was it relocated to Candyman in Chicago. It reinvented him. It imagined him as a as a black man played by Tony Todd who was an artist who fell in love with a white woman like a century before and was basically lynched and brutally killed and set alight and so but it was a movie written and directed by a white British guy and what Nia DaCosta and the producer Jordan Peele here are front and centering is that idea of black rage yeah. and black pain and it's going to be fascinating, I think, uh, hearing what Nia had to say about that. There, there are images and things that happen in this movie that I think are very bold and provocative. Mm. And it's a movie that I think is trying to satisfy the hardcore horror crowd with a bunch of gory kills thrown in every now and again. But there's a lot of stuff here under the surface that yeah. uh, is going to be very, very interesting to get into. And uh, it'll certainly leave you, it'll leave you coming away wanting to discuss a whole many, many things. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. It was fascinating uh, watching it to see nobody move when the credits started. Everybody just, just sat there oh. throughout the credits. And the credits themselves are, are very beautiful. And, and you've seen some of the shadow puppet work in, in some of the yes. trailers. And there's, there's more of that. But I, I think it was it, there was a little bit of time needed for digestion, I think, after it finished. And uh, yes. it benefited from that. But yeah, it, I think, I mean, it's astonishing. Even very simple shots or they should be simple, of the Chicago skyline, combined with the very, very impressive score by Robert Icke, Aubrey Lowe, um, that are just some of the most unsettling stuff I've seen all year in the cinema. I thought they were incredibly effective. So this really won me over. Mm -hmm. It didn't win Empire over entirely. Uh, we gave it three stars as a magazine, but uh, I'm very much in the four-star camp. And uh, it is a worthy successor to the 1992 movie. That is for sure. <laughs> Ignore the two dreadful sequels that followed. Farewell to the Flesh and Day of the Dead. And see this as the true Candyman slash Sweetie Boy sequel. So three stars then for Candyman. And let's move on now to Sean Durkin's The Nest, which stars Jude Law and Carrie Coon. And will be introduced by Mr. James Dyer. Yes, The Nest. This is not, in fact, a horror film about a family who buys a house on an ancient burial ground of a family of undead sort of killer hornets, although, frankly, that is a film I would watch. Uh, this is a very, very different film. Uh, this is, of course, from writer-director Sean Durkin, and it is a haunted house movie without a haunted house. So this is set in, I think it's the mid 
1980s and uh, you have Jude Law playing Rory O'Hara yes uh, <laughs> I knew a, he was a bad who's hey. a screaming bellend uh, yeah, who is. decides to move his family consisting of his wife Alison played by Carrie Coon his son Ben and his stepdaughter Sam uh, from their home in America back to the Surrey countryside to an insanely large house which no sane person could afford in Surrey and set up his job which involves some kind of business tradey type stuff in the city on these shores instead. Alison doesn't want to move, neither do his kids particularly, but when faced with a large and, let's be honest, absolutely stunning country mansion which once played home to Led Zeppelin, they are, to a certain extent, won over. And this film sort of charts the, to be fair, unwinding of his family after this move. So the reason I say it's kind of a haunted house movie, and this is kind of well documented, I think, by most people who've seen this film, because this film came out, I want to say, in the States in, God, wasn't it the end of 2019 it turned up at festivals? It's, I mean, it's been a year, hasn't it, mm. since it came out over there anyway. Mm. And it has that kind of pregnant sense of foreboding all over through large sort of like creepy looking house but there's always a sense that something sinister is going to happen something nasty is around the corner I think Durkin himself actually sort of flitted backwards and forwards across the Atlantic as a child so I think he's drawn on a lot of that and the upheaval that comes with it but it takes a slightly oblique approach I thought to the storytelling and it kind of it goes through that 80s sensibility the sort of the yuppie boom the kind of also power dynamics in relationships greed capitalism all that good stuff class boundaries getting away from you know your origins uh, the film doesn't feel 80s. It's not, it's not like a, a sort of pastiche of 80s stuff. It actually has more of a 90s feel, actually, at times. But um, it feels slightly off from the get-go. And it kind of that's what gets back to this haunted house feeling, that you feel there is something wrong. There's this real sense of foreboding. And I think, honestly, the performances are probably the high point of this for me, that and the properties. But Jude Law has always given magnificent bellend, and probably in few places more effectively than this. Like, he is so such a twat. He is sort of nastiness mixed up with desperation and under all those kind of like this gnawing sense of his own lack of self-worth that he's all sizzle and no substance. And he has a real sort of casual cruelty to him. But what works about this is it's not an outwardly abusive marriage. It is a problematic dynamic. It's a difficult relationship that's not overtly abusive, but he is a bellend. That said, well, as good as he is, like I love Carrie Coon. If anyone has ever seen The Leftovers, one of the greatest TV shows ever made, she is magnificent in that as Nora. Uh, and in this, it's just, it's a magnificent performance. Like she's got this whole death by a thousand cuts character. She's put upon, she's miserable, she's lost her sense of self. And genuinely, just the look on her face just conveys so much emotion at any given time. There's an incident with a fur coat, which just speaks volumes. Uh, so I thought she was fantastic. Uh, like this is billed, I guess, as a psychological thriller. It feels to me more of a slightly elliptical social commentary yeah. um, but you know I, I can't say I enjoyed it I found it a really stressful watch but it's very good and it has, has great performances Katie what do you uh, make of this? For me, it was just like, it just highlighted how hard it was back in the 80s, how hard it was to find work and the stress of relocating, especially abroad. And then the, the fact that he was just so willing to do this for his family, who are obviously comfortable and obviously happy to just do this and just move to a completely different country. And then you knew that there was something going to happen. It's just a matter of how long it will take before the shit hits the fan so to speak. You can see Kokoon's character become even more miserable and Jude Law's character just digs himself into a deeper and deeper hole. But when you when Kokoon's character has this really personal loss and when her husband is not, doesn't focus on the fact of her feelings, but the loss to him, mm. you can see what the problem was. It was just how are they going to get out of that hole? But for me, it was a bit lopsided. 
the narrative because it focused on them. Mm. You don't really see the side effects on the children because they're part of the family as well. And they would be feeling more stressed than they, than they are. But they don't, they kind of like pushed aside until like third third act when it just kind of explodes. And as James said, it was stressful to watch. And I think you were just kind of hoping for something to happen, that realisation of things that might get better. And to have that just waiting and waiting and waiting, it was just, it, will, it did end up being a bit of a slog towards the end. I don't know mm. about you guys. Yeah, a little bit. And I agree about the kids. I think they've sidelined them for so long that when they sort of come back into the narrative, it doesn't have quite the emotional impact that you want. This, this, A lot of this just felt a little bit underdeveloped to me. Like I just wanted a little tiny bit more from a lot of different characters in it. It almost felt like it was like just one scene short in several directions, you know. But, but very, very good performances, as James says. Yes, indeed. But we gave this one four stars. Four stars then for The Nest. And the next movie is Our Ladies. And Katie, you've seen this one. Yes, I have. It was, God, it was like back in, back in 2019, as part of the London Film Festival, it had a special screening there. It's based on the novel by Alan Warner called The Sopranos, not to be confused with the HBO show. <laughs> and it's essentially a, about a group of choir girls who are from the small Scottish town of Fort William. And they are embarking on a competition in Edinburgh. And they are super, super excited because it is the first time that they're actually in a big city. So um, chaos ensues. All, and all the while you have the like the lingering time constraint of the competition because one of the girls in the group, Kyla, who's played by Marley Sue. She is one of the strongest singers in the choir. So there was a lot of pressure on her, especially, to be back in time for the competition. But as soon as they're out of prying eyes of their choir mistress, they get rid of the uniforms, they get their makeup on, knee-high boots, they start hitting the pubs and hitting the greasy spoons and the bars, and they try and impress much older men. <laughs> it's a bit chaotic. At times, but it, it is a coming of age story. You know, there are a couple of couple of characters who are quite notable. You have Orla, who is played by Talula Grieve. I apologise for the pronunciation. She <laughs> is like the narrator, so to speak. Um, she is actually a cancer sufferer. And then you also have Fanula, who is the leader of the group. She's played by Abigail Laurie. She actually has her own personal journey, which also involves another supporting character, Kay, who's played by Eve Austin. She's an outsider because unlike the group, she's not as rebellious as they are. Instead, she goes by the rules and is a bit of a goody two-shoes in their eyes. But there is a rapport between her and Fanula that actually could have dealt with a lot more development. Mm. So we just kind of, that relationship brought out tender moments as well as the dynamic of the group. Because even though they've got, different personalities and different presences in the film, they all band together. And they actually it's actually quite funny because this was set in 1996. This was, so this was before social media, mobile phones really took into place. So, you know, they, they're saying their things out loud. So when they try to flirt with guys or give their opinions, it's just over hushed conversations over the table and they just look really, really awkward. And it, it actually kind of had a nostalgic feel. Especially if, like me, you grow up in a small town and you dream about that school trip in a big city where you just want to see what it's going to be like. And for me, it was, it was a very tender coming of age story, but certain things could have been developed more. 
but it's it's really charming. Okay, what would you what would you give it? Because we don't we don't have an official Empire review up yet. So oh, oh gosh, pressure! I think I get yeah. I gave this out three out of five stars. Essentially, okay. it's like the na- the narrative was quite simple, but it's it's so sweet and it's very charming. And it's a British film, so you know British films need to be championed. There you go, three stars then for our ladies. What's your cat's name? This is Gomez, and Lily is actually Lily is a one-year-old. She's asleep by my feet. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Four four stars then for Gomez and Lily uh, <laughs> as well. So next up, let's talk about Vacation Friends, shall we? Which is a John Cena starring R-rated comedy that is available only on Star on Disney Plus as of this week. Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this comes from director Clay Tarver. It stars Lil Rel, uh, Lil Rel Harry from Get Out as Marcus. And he and his girlfriend, Emily, played by Yvonne Orgy, go on holiday to Mexico. Now, he's planning to propose when he gets there. They've got the honeymoon suite. They've got the whole thing laid out. Unfortunately, things start to go wrong from the get-go. And the only thing that gets them through this holiday are these incredibly weird, loud, aggressive... Americans that they meet there, John Cena's Ron and Meredith Hagner's Kyla. And the, the, the foursome end up kind of hanging out together, much against Marcus and Emily's better judgment. They do end up loosening up. They do end up having a good time. It does end up being a bit of a crazy week. Unfortunately, then, when they go home to their quiet, sedate, respectable lives, wouldn't you know it, Kyla and Ron follow them to their wedding and threaten to basically derail the whole thing. You can see pretty much every beat of this story coming from just what I've told you. That's not because I've spoiled it. It's because the beat of this is like every other inappropriate friend story ever told on the cinema screen. It did make me laugh at times, though, and I feel like it's one of those Friday nights, my brain isn't working anymore, I just want to watch something that won't tax me too much kind of films, you know, with a lot of swearing, a lot of drug use, a lot of reference to sex, if not like sort of boning on screen. It's not train wreck, but it's fine. They're good people. I didn't hate it. Give it five stars, Helen. Give it five stars. Go on. <laughs> I know you want to. I can tell. I can tell. I do not want to. I- I'm with you on this one. I thought it was, uh, I-, I went into a dreading it mm. as I pressed play. I was like, oh no, please, it's going to be terrible. But it's, it's good. Yeah. It's amiable fun. It's it's fine. It made me laugh quite a bit. Uh, you know, there's It's got a nice way with, uh, with uh, a setup and then cutaway making you laugh. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and and, you know, Lil Rail is, is very, very good. Very and good. I think we need to talk about what they did to John Cena's charisma in Fast 9 and how they managed to tamp it down when it, the man is basically made of charisma, uh, as you can see in the Suicide Squad and, and here as well. And he's very, very funny. And what the hell happened in Fast 9? Anyway, again, I don't know if there's an official Empire review of this one. So I'm going to give it 875 stars. 875 wow. stars for a vacation friends and then real quick is a movie that's on netflix uh starring jason momoa kicking ass and taking names in sweet girl is this a Candyman spin-off jimbo uh, not quite this is carl drogo versus big pharma which is th- i can see why this got greenlit just on the basis of that but this stars the great jason momoa as ray and he's a guy whose wife dies of cancer and the reason, the reason she dies is her treatment was withheld by the dodgy business practices of big pharma the face of big pharma in this is the smarmy face of justin bartha and and Ray goes out for revenge. Another thing you could have called this is what if Dora the Explorer did MMA? So his daughter in this is played by Dora the Explorer, Isabella Merced, and she can hold her own in a fight as well. And the two of them go on a kind of revenge rampage. So 
it's a little bit like The Fugitive in that there's a crime, he's on the run, it's Big Farmer at the heart of it, except he absolutely did it because you see him do it, and he kind of loses some of his moral high ground quite early on when he just murders the shit out of a bunch of people. That said, he's great. You know I love C and I love Momoa generally, but I think the problem here is, like, you know, something like C, which has great fight sequences, this does not. I thought the fights lacked a certain kinetic energy. There's a big fight on a train, and, like, you look at the bus fight in Shang-Chi, or even the bus fight in Nobody, and this just isn't even close to it. So, actually, I felt a little bit let down by the action, and it does get a little bit leaden and sluggish in the Mm. third act. It does some unexpected things, shall we say, towards the end of this film, but there's no sophistication to this. There's no subtlety whatsoever. We gave this two stars, and I have to say, it's hard for me to disagree. Two stars. Such a shame. Such a shame. Take two of the 875 stars I gave to <laughs> Vacation Friends. Maybe add them to this movie, but... I don't think that's how that works, Chris. That doesn't sound like it deserves it. No. no, no. I'm just throwing stars around willy-nilly. I'm like some sort of power-crazed god. Anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. By the way, our live show, our next live show is on the 11th of September at King's Place as part of the London Podcast Festival. You can see that in two ways. You can be there in the room or you can watch a live stream, either live or in a 72-hour period after the show finishes. And it will not be available as a regular podcast afterwards. So it's a one-off show. That's your only chance to see it on the 11th of September. Go to kingsplace.co.uk for more information and to pick up tickets or to buy your streaming pass. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Simu Liu, Shang-Chi himself, uh, which is where I have to run to do. I've got to go to Sumtown, catch a bus to Sumtown and to talk to Simu in just a few minutes. So that is why I am heading out the door. Uh, but until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names, Katie. <laughs> Katie Smith-Wong. I didn't warn her about the squad cast names. In yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> Okay, well, okay, we're going to have to have you back on because you've got got a taste of the Empire Podcast experience, not the whole thing. So we'll have to have you on for the three-fact structure. Because it's coming back. (laughs) Three-fact structure and the listener question and the movie news and the whole kit and caboodle. And then you can have yourself a, a good old Squadcast name then. But right now, Katie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It is goodbye from Baba Foss, James Dyer. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, Do check out the live Terry Farewell episode of the Pilot TV podcast on YouTube and next week's episode where we're replacing Terry with Amanda Abington. She's going to be joining us for the whole show. So that will be exciting. Will it? Yes. No, Amanda's great. Amanda's great. The show, I'm sure, will be substandard at best. Anyway, it is goodbye Mm. from God rest ye Terry gentlemen, Mm. Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo! And it's goodbye from me, Sweetie Boy, which is, of course, the British version of Candyman. Uh, in fact, I'm off to get a quarter pound of cherry lips, a quarter pound of floral gums, some alphabet sweets, and a four pack of Cadbury's caramel because I am the real Candyman. Candyman. Stop it. Candyman. Shh. Oh, God. And that'll do. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. 